Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Desiring the Kingdom, a study of the books of First and Second Kings. Here's Pastor Nick. It says that he cried and he said, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. That sounds like kind of a weird thing to say to somebody who's dying. Oh, you're dying. The chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Like, what does that mean? Well, actually, it makes a lot of sense if you think about it. This is actually a phrase that's used several times in the Bible. And here's what it means. When you say this to somebody, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, what he's saying is he's referring to the strength of the nation. And what he's saying is, Elisha, you are the true strength of the nation. Think about it. In ancient cultures, chariots and horsemen, these were the main instruments of military warfare and military power. So the strength of a nation would be measured by the number of chariots and the number of horsemen that the military had. But what Joash is saying instead is he's saying, Elisha, it's not the military of Israel that's our true strength. It is you. It is you, Elisha. You represent the true strength. You are the reason for the protection of Israel. You're the reason why we're okay. And the reason, understand, Joash is saying this because he's scared. He's scared about the future. Think about it. He's worried. How can we ever go on? If Elisha is the strength and the protection of Israel, then what will happen to us if he's gone? Well, how will we move forward as a nation? And so in this scared state, in this frightened state, worried about the future and the loss of Elisha, look at what Elisha does and says to Joash. It says in verse 15, Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. And then he said to the king, draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hand. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. And Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end to them. Now I want you to just picture this scene in your mind so you can really get a grasp on what's happening. Here's this old man. He's sick. He's dying. These are his last days on earth. And this young king comes down to visit him. And the old man, the young king's worried. What's going to happen when the prophet is gone? The prophet tells him, take a bow and arrow, open the window. And I want you to pull back the bow and aim the arrow out the window. Now what's going on here? Well, look at what happens next. The old prophet, he gets up, this sick old man, he gets up and he takes his hands and he places them on the hands of the young king as he's holding the bow and arrow. You can imagine this. If, you, if you've ever tried to teach a child how to, how to do something, like how to write their name, what do you do? You put your hand on their hand and you hold their hand and you help them to do it, right? You, you might be teaching them to cast a fishing pole. You put your hands on their hands and you do it together with them. Teaching them to shoot a bow and arrow, for example. You, you'd put your hands on theirs and you pull it back together with them. That's the same idea here. The old prophet is putting his hands on the young man's hands and he's saying, let's take this shot together. I'm here. I'm with you. I will guide you. I will assist you. Let's do this together. So he's holding his hands as they shoot this arrow out of the window to the east. Now what is to the east? What's to the east is Syria. 
In verse 17, Elisha made it very clear. He explained to Joash very clearly, this shooting of the arrow towards Syria, this is a symbolic act which represents attacking Syria militarily. And actually, it's interesting, you read up on this, this was an ancient custom that was sometimes done. When a king wanted to declare war, one of the things he would do is symbolically, he would shoot an arrow towards that nation as a way of declaring war and saying, I'm going to fight against this nation. And so as he tells him, okay, I want you to declare war against Syria, and he tells him, as you shoot this arrow, God is going to give you the victory. This arrow represents a strike against Syria by which God is going to deliver Israel. And Elisha says, this is the arrow of victory over Syria. This is what you need to do, Joash. God will be with you. You just shoot these arrows. You attack Syria. Well, with that in mind, look at what happens now in verse 18. He says this. Elisha says to him again, now take the arrows. And Joash took them, and he said to the king of Israel, now strike the ground with them. Now, just pause there for a second. When we read that in English, what does it sound like? It sounds like he's telling him, grab a handful of arrows and kind of tap them on the ground, right? Smack the arrows on the ground, the handful of arrows. Well, if, that's not exactly what it means. Actually, it's not at all what it means. If you read it in Hebrew, what, what it's meaning is this. Strike the ground means that just as he struck the ground with an arrow before by shooting it into the air so it didn't hit any other object, but it just fell to the ground, that's what he's telling him to do. So just as he already shot one arrow out the window, to strike the ground doesn't mean to tap the arrows on the ground. It means shoot more arrows out the window towards the east so that they fly in the air and then strike the ground. They don't strike anything else. And so the idea here is shoot more arrows. So just as Joash already shot one arrow with Elisha holding his hands, now Elisha's telling him, okay, this time I'm not going to hold your hands. I want you to just shoot the arrows on your own. Understand, this is a very poignant picture. Elisha is telling him, until now, I have been with you. I have lent you my strength, but soon I will be departing from this world, and you are going to be on your own. I won't be here to help you, and you are going to have to attack Syria on your own without me. But here's the promise. Just as that arrow that we shot together was the arrow of God's victory over Syria, God will continue to give you victory over Syria if you will continue to keep shooting these arrows and attacking them. As many shots as you take, in other words, that's how much victory God will give you. As many shots as you want, you will be successful. So the question is, Joash, how much victory do you want? God will give you as much victory as you want. So go ahead, Joash. Let's do this symbolically. I want you to show me. Shoot the arrows out the window. And as many arrows as you shoot, that's how many victories God will give you over Syria. And so Joash, it says there, he reaches into his quiver. He pulls out one arrow, and, and on his own, he shoots that arrow towards Syria. It represents a, an attack, a strike against Syria. Okay, cool. So God's going to give him victory in at least one battle. What does Joash do? He grabs another arrow, shoots that arrow. Now it's two, two victories God is promising he will have over Syria. What does he do? He grabs a third arrow, and he shoots that three times now. God is going to give him three victories. But then... He stops. We don't know why he stops. He just stops shooting. We, we do know one thing. We know that the reason he stopped shooting was not because he ran out of arrows. And how do we know that? Well, because look at what it says there in verse 18. Then the man of God was angry with him. 
Why is Elisha angry? He says, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end to it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. Now, listen, you may be tempted to feel bad for Joash at this moment and say, poor Joash, right? He, he probably has no idea what's going on here. It's this weird instruction to take some arrows and shoot them out a window, right? Like, how does he know that he should have shot more times? And he probably thought three was good enough, right? Now he's being punished because three wasn't good enough? I mean, it seems so arbitrary and he doesn't know the rules. Poor guy. But listen, Joash understood exactly what was going on here. Elisha had made this incredibly clear, and Elisha had made him an incredible offer, an incredible promise from God. It was this, Joash, you can have as much victory over the Syrians as you want. Go ahead, as many arrows as you are willing to shoot, that is how many, that's how many victories God will give you over Syria. I mean, think about it like in these terms. It'd be like if I told you, hey, here's a button. As many times you push this button, you'll get $100 every time you push it. But once you stop, then it's over. And you're like, well, cool, I, I'd love to have $100. And so you push the button, and then you push the button again, then you push the button again, and then you're like, all right, that'll do, right? $300 is a lot of money. And I say, with $300, you could have had so much more, right? Just keep pushing the button. Keep pushing the button until it breaks. Push the button until your finger breaks. I don't care. Like, keep pushing the button until it doesn't give you any more dollars, right? Like, how much do you want? Why would you even stop? This doesn't make any sense. It's the same idea here in this story. God is offering Joash as much victory as he wants. How much do you want, Joash? What Joash should have done, he should have shot all the arrows in his quiver until there were no more arrows left. And when they ran out, he should have run out and got some more arrows, gone to the arrow store and bought as many arrows as they had in stock. He should have gone next door, knocked on the neighbor's door. Hey, you got any arrows? You got anything that I could even use as an arrow? A spoon? I'll throw it. I don't care, right? Like, just keep shooting arrows. Call the arrow delivery service. I don't know, whatever you got to do. Get as many arrows as you possibly can until Elisha says, hey, bro, just chill out. That was enough arrows. But instead... He's like phlegmatic, right? He takes three arrows, shoots them, and he's like, man, good enough. That'll do. And the reason Elisha is upset is because Joash is settling for less than what God would have given him, what, what God would have done for him. Joash is lacking in zeal, in passion, in desire. And God has called him to do something, right? He's given him a calling on his life. His calling is to lead and protect and deliver the people of Israel from their oppressors. But Joash, he's only concerned with doing the bare minimum. Three. That's probably enough. I just want to do the minimum and get it done with. You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings with services at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings, online or in person at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Now, back to Pastor Nick with the remainder of today's message. And as a result, he ends up getting less than what God would have given him. And friends, I can't help but think that there are so many parallels here for our lives in our lives when it relates to God and the things of God. Here's the thing, guys. Think about this. If you are a believer, you have unfiltered, unlimited access to God. You, have, you can have as much of God as you want. Do you know that? You can have as much of God as you want. You can have as rich of a relationship with God as you want to have. 
That is available to you. It is yours for the taking. You know what else? You can experience victory and freedom in your life to whatever degree you're willing to take it. It's offered to you in Christ. In in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us that God has given us in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All the joy, all the peace, all the hope in the world. It's like Christmas presents under the tree with your name written on them, and all you got to do is go and take them. And the question is, will you take hold of them? You know, I host a call-in radio show every Friday, as I mentioned earlier, and I uh, get a lot of calls in which people ask me these questions. Like, the questions I ask me is stuff like, so is it technically a sin if I do this? Uh, They want to know, what exactly constitutes adultery? (laughs) So technically, what is lying? Okay, the word cocaine is not mentioned in the Bible. You get these kind of questions, right? Or, or they'll ask me questions like, where in the Bible does it say that I have to do this? Like, be basic ones like, where in the Bible does it say that I have to be baptized? Or, or where in the Bible does it say that I have to go to church or, or give a cent to the work of God? Like, show me in the Bible where it says that I have to do that. And let's have an argument about it so I can tell you it doesn't really mean that. Uh, oftentimes, and what I'll tell these people is, you know, friend, you are asking the wrong question. You are asking the absolute wrong question because essentially what you're saying is this. You know, what is the bare minimum that I can get away with without God being upset with me? Like, I just want to squeeze in the door, right? Like, what's the bare minimum that I can possibly do? Because that's what I want to do, the bare minimum. Or when someone asks, like, if something is technically a sin, right, what they're really saying is, like, I want to get as close to the fire as I possibly can without, like, without dying, right? Like, it's okay if my hair gets singed off and my clothes catch on fire. I just don't want to burn to death, right? Like, how close can I possibly get? And I'll tell them, I I don't even want to answer this question because it's the wrong question to begin with. Rather than asking, you know, what is the most I can possibly do and get away with it? Or what's the absolute minimum that God says I have to do? Look at what Jesus said instead compared to that. Jesus said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Think about how you love yourself, okay? Do, do, you, do you calculate? What is the absolute minimum I have to do to, you know, not die, right? That's not how we love ourselves at all, right? How do we love ourselves? We, we always tell ourselves, I need to treat myself, right? And in other words, that's how we're called to love our neighbors. How much more so how we're called to love God? Not with the minimum, but with all that we are. And listen, I know none of us live up to that. We all fall short. But when it comes to loving others and loving God, this is the target. This is the goal. This is the standard. And like Joash, what do we do? We often settle for so much less than what God offers us and what God would give us. And what it comes down to, as we see here with Joash, is an issue of desire. And so the big question is, how do we grow in our desires for the right things? How do we learn, as we say in that sentence, how do we learn to share God's desires? Well, the psalmist puts it this way. I find this interesting. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. In other words, how do you develop a hunger for God? Here's how. One taste at a time. 
One taste at a time builds a hunger over time. The apostle John, he put it this way. He said, we love because God first loved us. So how do we develop love for God and love for others? It's by experiencing, tasting, seeing God's goodness. That's why we open up his word in order to see his glory, to hear his voice. Rather than feeding our flesh, we feed the spirit. We pray, we worship, we seek him. And with every taste, every glimpse, it builds our hunger. It develops that desire for the things that God desires and for God himself. Jesus also said this. He said, Whatever, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He encouraged us, store up treasures, not on earth, but in heaven. You know, the thing about your treasure, what are the things that you treasure? Well, we tend to treasure our time, our resources, our energy. And the idea is this. If you will invest those things time, energy, resources into God's kingdom, into God's work, then your heart will be bound to those things. You will desire those things. You know why? Think about it like this. Uh, I used to have the stock app on my phone, and I would always just delete it. What do I need that for? But then I bought some stock. And you know what I do every day? I check that app. I'm like, oh, did I make any money today? Right? It's this idea that the, the mission trip that you funded you're going to care a lot more about than the one where you just heard that they were going and you told them, hey, go for it, right? In other words, when you're, when you're invested in it, your heart is bound up in it. So one of the easiest ways and simplest ways to direct and develop our heart and our desires and learn the things that God loves is by investing our earthly resources into the work in the kingdom of God. Here's why. Because to be a follower of Jesus isn't about just getting the right information into our heads. Let me say that again. Being a follower of Jesus isn't just about getting the right information into your heads. Listen, if that's all it was, the Pharisees would have been awesome because they had all the right information in their heads. What was the issue with the Pharisees? It was their hearts. Look at Joash here. He does technically do what Elisha told him to do, didn't he? And yet what he lacked was the heart. It's not just about the right information in our heads. It's about the right heart, a heart for God, the right desires. So how do we shape our desires to desire the things that God desires? And here's how we do it, as we see here. Through intentional actions. We sometimes call these spiritual disciplines. Here at the beginning of the year, I always want to encourage you guys to do these things. Spiritual disciplines, you know what they do? They, they're not just going through the motions. They're going through the right motions. The motions that train your heart and train your mind, build within you a hunger and a desire for the Lord. Well, that brings us to the, the end of our sentence and also the end of our study today. So let's look at this second and last part of our sentence. Developing a heart for God means learning to share God's desires and to desire God himself. Look at verse 20. It says, So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now the bands of the Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood to his feet. This last miracle that Elisha does, it happens after he's already dead. I find it so interesting that Elisha died at all and was buried. Because remember, Elijah, who came before Elisha, he never tasted death. He was carried up to heaven in a fiery chariot. And yet Elisha, who in many ways actually surpassed Elijah, his mentor, his death is unceremonious. He, he dies by getting sick, and he dies, and they bury him. Elisha performed 16 great miracles that are recorded here in 2 Kings. That's twice as many as Elijah. 
twice as many, including, many of these miracles included healing the sick and even raising the dead. And yet here at the end of Elisha's life, there's no miracle. There's no healing. He gets sick, he dies, and he's buried. But what you need to understand is that Elisha's death was not a tragedy, not by any means. Because Elisha had the hope, which all of the Old Testament saints had, which was this, that one day God would resurrect them, not just temporarily, like, like the guy who touched Elisha's bones and came back to life for a time. No, God would resurrect them, bring them to life forever, eternally. And Elisha's hope was this hope of eternal life in the presence of God. This God whom he had served for his entire life. When he departed from this world, Elisha walked right into the embrace of that God, which was something infinitely better. During his lifetime, Elijah, or Elisha saw God do incredible things. And yet none of those incredible things that God did could ever compare to seeing God himself. To have a heart for God, it means desiring not only what God can give you, it means desiring God himself. Listen, many people consider God useful to them. Like Jehoah has. Remember, he considered God useful to him when he had a problem, when he needed something. He considered God useful to him. But it's a different thing altogether to not just consider God useful to you, but to seek God because you consider him beautiful to you. Not just for what he can give you, but for who he is. Elisha performed a lot of miracles, but you know what? Later on, many years later, another prophet came on the scene who performed even more miracles than Elisha ever did. That man's name was Jesus. And just as through Elisha's death, another person came back to life, through the death of Jesus, many more have been brought from ultimate death into everlasting life. As great as Elisha was, he was only, at best, a foreshadowing, a taste, a preview of the one who was to come, Jesus Christ, and what he would do. And the most important step in developing a heart for God is for you to receive a new heart. The way that that happens is when you put your hope and your trust in Jesus and his death on the cross for your sins and his resurrection from the grave to eternal life, not only do you receive forgiveness and eternal life, but you receive a new heart a heart that is inclined towards God, a heart that is soft rather than hard, a heart that is tender to God's touch and desires the things that God desires, and ultimately a heart that desires Him. Those desires can be developed, they can be shaped, they can be cultivated, but they begin by you receiving a new heart. How do you do that? Well, how do you receive that kind of heart? Well, do you remember Jehoahaz from earlier in our story? That ungodly man who prayed and God heard his prayer? Well, listen, it's good news that God hears the prayers of the ungodly because you know what that means? It means that he's willing to hear your prayers and my prayers as well. All of us have sinned and fallen short, but if you will pray and you will ask God to remove your heart of stone and replace it with a new heart, a heart of flesh that desires what he desires and desires him, he will do it. That is his promise to you. And so may I encourage you today, may we not be those who ever settle for less than what God wants to give us. May we be those who can keep on and continue shooting the arrows in faith until we've got no more arrows left to shoot because we want to take hold of all that God has for us and all that he offers us, both now and for eternity. 
You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com.